and welcome to episode 64 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast, the back to actual observing edition, because we've been getting some observing in. Is that right, Shane? Yeah, we had like an unseasonably warm stretch there where it was double digits on the positive side, which, you know, I think this time of the year, we're usually probably closer to zero for highs or uh, maybe even on the freezing side of the thermometer. Uh, but it was beautiful. And we had some clear nights on top of that. Um, it was great. Yeah. So I'm Chris and Shane is joining me here. Uh, we are amateur astronomers and that means we do astronomy just for the fun of it. And this podcast is how we share the fun of astronomy with all of you listeners out there, of which there's more and more every day. So it's just that much more fun for us. Um, and like you were saying, this, uh, this past week and the week before were uh, actually pretty warm. Um, we were up to, I think, 21 or 22 degrees Celsius above zero, which is, uh, which is fairly warm for Saskatchewan this time of year. And today we are set to get 40 centimeters of snow. Yeah, things can turn or turn quite quickly here on the prairies. <laughs> sure, we've can. got quite a system coming through, which this is quite abnormal as well. Probably almost as abnormal as the twenty degree weather last week. But um, here we go. It's raining right now, freezing rain, and and it's not going to get any better for a little while. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's true. Yeah, it's it's kind of funny, you know. Uh, the weather here on the prairies can be uh, fairly extreme, and I'm I'm not originally from here. Shane is, but uh, I remember when I first moved out here, and the one thing I found, and I and I still find this, is everybody says, "Well, it's supposed to be better next week," you know. And, and like I always feel like I'm going to be walking through a graveyard someday and actually see that in someone's gravestone, right? I'm like, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, pretty much, like right? Well. So uh, uh, anyway, this past week it was it was. Uh, not really forecast to be very good for astronomy. It's forecast to be warm, but often when we go through these cycles of, of things getting really warm and then cooling down, uh, that typically does not make for good astronomy weather, does it? No, usually it, it, you know, if we get clear nights, the seeing is usually really, really bad because you have all of this yeah. warm kind of ground air trying to mix with cooler atmospheric air and it just results usually in in really bad seeing so um we had a little bit of bad seeing but we had some nights of some really really good seeing too to counter that which was not expected yeah how many uh sessions were you able to squeeze in this this past week uh, just, uh, well, I'll say really just one, although I, mm -hmm. I was out twice, but the one session I won't really count cause it was brief and, uh, seeing conditions were quite poor. Yeah. Um, but I did have one really fun session. Um, I even forget which day it was. It was one of the warmer nights out. And, um, uh, what I did is I took the 76 millimeter refractor out, um, mm -hmm. but I also, uh, so I took my, my double mount, you know, the, the sky T that you can put two telescopes on at once. Yeah, and, sort of um, one on each side of your tripod, kind of is what it looks like, I think. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the the second telescope that I mounted uh, was my little fifty millimeter uh, f uh, f ten point four uh, refractor. A little, it's a little Zeiss. Uh, they call it like a, a teleminer. <laughs> it's uh, similar to the telemeter. Uh, the telemeter is is quite an, a famous classic telescope. Uh, it's, that one is a 63 millimeter uh, Zeiss, and it it's fantastic. Um, the little 50 millimeter has kind of an interesting history behind it. 
Um, Zeiss made these little ones. Zeiss made these to be like basically a school experiment where you would build a telescope in the classroom. So Zeiss made the lens, the lens cell, and then they also included like a little eyepiece holder that's 0.965 inches. And basically mm-hmm. that's what you got in the box. Um, then part of the experiment or the exercise within the classroom was to put this together in a, in a tube and then, you know, adjust the focal length so that it would focus for you. And you had a telescope and then, you know, the teacher, you know, would go on about you know, how telescopes work and all of that fun stuff. But anyway, a number of these little 50 millimeters were made and, and you can find them used on eBay and, and uh, you know, the other usual suspects um, for relatively, uh, you know, modest investment. Like I think just the lens cell you can find occasionally for around $150 Canadian. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was a guy on cloudy nights. I'm not sure if he's still doing it, but he was selling the tube uh, with a helical focuser. Um, and he flocked the tube and, and like, it's made for this little Zeiss Teleminer. And, um, I think he was selling it for like, uh, maybe 150 American or something like that. So, you know, for around $300, you get yourself kind of a fun little refractor. Mm -hmm. Um, but what I wanted to do, so the 76 millimeter Takahashi that I was using has a 570 millimeter focal length. The little Zeiss has a 540 uh, millimeter focal length. So almost identical. Pretty close. Um, yeah. What I wanted to do was just like the back and forth comparison to see how a 76 millimeter compared to a 50 millimeter. Um, now there's obviously some other variables here. The 76 is a you know, very good apochromatic refractor, whereas the 50 millimeter is a very good achromatic uh, refractor. So the difference between apochromat and an achromat is the apochromat just has better color correction. Um, and so, so not as much or almost no false color when you're looking at bright objects. Um, and then the other variable here is you have a telescope that was pro- like the, the little 50 millimeter. Gee, I think that was probably from the seventies. Um, so, you know, you're looking at like a 50 year old telescope lens versus a brand new one with brand new coatings, um, different glass. So, you know, there's more at play here than just the focal length, but I was still mm-hmm. curious to see how it played out. Mm. So, and so what did you find out? Well, so the target was Mars for the most part. And uh, what I did is I just, I took the diagonal out of one telescope with the eyepiece in it, and I just plugged it into the other telescope and I kind of went back and forth all night. Mm-hmm. Um, so that helped keep some of the variables consistent. Um, image scale between the two was identical. Um, you know, Mars appeared the same size in either telescope, which is just a, um, a result of the focal length being very similar. Um, you know, color of the planet, I felt was pretty similar, maybe just a, a touch, um, you know, deeper orange in the tack, maybe that's, uh, that was kind of hard to distinguish. Um, but what was very evident, um, was that the 76 millimeter, just with that extra aperture and then you know, probably a little bit to do with the newer coatings and the newer glass, um, was able to resolve Mars a little bit more crisper, you know, like mm-hmm. the, the outline of the disc was sharper, um, almost like I could get a tighter focus. Um, yeah. and then the other thing where the aperture really stood out was some of the surface features on Mars, like the contrast was better in the 76 without question. 
um, you know, so like the edges from some of the dark regions to the, you know, kind of orangey brighter regions was just more distinct. And I could see a little more of the, um, kind of that line, I guess. Um, but, but while all of that was easier to see in the 76, if you, if you looked long enough through the 50, it was there. It just wasn't as pronounced and wasn't quite as maybe mm. pleasing of a view. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, you know, it was really surprising actually what I could see through the, the 50. Um, now would I grab that as, you know, my, my regular telescope to go out in the backyard? Not a chance, you know, the 76 is just so much nicer to use. And like I say, it was easier to see some of those features. And I think if the seeing was better, um, cause the seeing, I, I would say that night was like kind of in the middle, it was okay, but it wasn't mm-hmm. anything spectacular. Um, we wouldn't what like, I wasn't was going, sorry. What night was that? I don't remember. I think that was Tuesday night. Maybe. Okay. Yeah. Monday or Tuesday. Yeah. Tuesday uh, wasn't amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And I was able to go up to about a hundred times magnification. Um, anything over that just wasn't worth it. Um, so I, I find like when you have some of the, like say the higher end stuff like that tack, it really starts to separate itself on the really good nights, you know, the yeah. marginal nights, a lot of telescopes are all the same, you know, yep. all the eyepieces are kind of the same on yep. those, you know, typical nights. But when you get those exceptional nights of seeing, that's when the really good gear, you know, is extremely noticeable. Um, yeah. So that was kind of a fun comparison. Um, the other thing I did too is I can't remember if I've mentioned this on the podcast or if you and I have just sort of chatted about it. But um, I did acquire a Pentax SMC 40 millimeter Kellner. Oh, yeah. Um, I think you did mention that once. Yeah. So it's a bit of a legendary eyepiece. And it's one that I've, I've wanted for a long time. Um, because what I've, or the reason I've wanted it is um, I wanted a, like a lower power wide field eyepiece. But I didn't want it to have, you know, 16 elements of glass and weigh four pounds, <laughs> you know, yeah. like the, like the Nagler 31 and don't quote me on those elements. I don't know how many are in there, but my point is I wanted a, like a minimal glass kind of wide field eyepiece. Um, as you know, like I've been fascinated by how the super monocentrics perform with their mm-hmm. minimal glass. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious how a minimal glass wide field will, will perform on the wide field stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and also lighter, right? So Anyway, uh, the Pentax SMC is uh, got a, a very good reputation, and I was lucky enough to acquire one. And what is very interesting, the, the, fir- the first thing that was really interesting about this eyepiece is um, uh, like the, the older telescopes, particularly ones of Japanese origin, um, and even German, I guess, uh, were 0.965 inch eyepieces. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can find adapters for those to bring them up to the 1.25 modern standard. Um, so when I when I ordered the Pantex, I, I didn't know. I just assumed it was probably a 0.965. Well, it's a one and a half inch barrel, which is <laughs> really, really odd. I've never like I never heard of one and a half inch. And then it's sort of like an average size. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So. Um, I did a little research and um, I guess some Pentex telescopes had an inch and a half focuser, I think, and, and could take this eyepiece and, and it would work well. Um, obviously, you know, with modern stuff, it's either inch and a quarter or two inches. So yep. that didn't fit very well. 
Um, but the neat thing is that that barrel just screws right off. And then um, it, it has a, a standard Vixen thread. I forget the millimeter, like 36.4 or something like that. And um, I have a, a um, an inch and a quarter nose piece with those threads. So I was able to thread that onto this uh, Kellner and um, it works. So mm -hmm. I think I lose a little bit of the field. Like it's not quite as wide as it would be with the, um, with the inch and a quarter on there. Yeah. But um, it still worked quite good. I would say that um, it was very comparable to my uh, panoptic in terms really? of, uh, well, in terms of the, the size of the field, like, mm. and which, you know, is, that's kind of what I expected because you can only get, um, you know, so much uh, field of view out of an inch and a quarter eyepiece. Mm -hmm. um, so I think I maxed that out. But what really surprised me was the sharpness of um, this eyepiece. Like it was really, really good. Um, yeah. Right to the edge. Um, I would say maybe the outer 5% was a little bit soft where, yeah. you know, the stars started to deform a little. Yep. But wow, anything inside of that was crystal clear. Uh, the color rendition just of the stars and of Mars, I thought was quite fantastic. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, initial impressions are very, very nice. Great eye relief. Um, it's, uh, it's exceptionally light for a 40 millimeter eyepiece. And uh, the true test will be under a dark sky because that's the real purpose of a 40 millimeter eyepiece. Yeah. Um, so my next test, I don't know when this will happen, will be to compare that 40 millimeter to some of the, um, like the 41 millimeter panoptic or the 31 millimeter uh, Nagler, you know, some, yeah. some modern wide field eyepieces that have a whole bunch of glass in them. Um, I'm yeah. just curious to see. Obviously the field of view will be different. Like the modern mm -hmm. stuff will be much wider. Um, but on axis, I'm just wondering if I'll be able to see a little more detail through the Pentex or not, um, when looking at say, you know, nebulas and, and maybe galaxies too. Uh, so this is a, a, uh, an eyepiece that's only available on the used market, I think, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's no longer made. I, I can't, I don't know it's production run. Um, it was either like some, somewhere in the eighties or maybe into the nineties, but yeah. I, I think it was uh, more of an eighties eyepiece. It was made in conjunction with the 0.965 inch Pentax SMC orthoscopic eyepieces. Okay. Um, well, that, those with, have an uh, incredible reputation. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, those are right up there with uh, like Zeiss Abbey orthos and the TMB super monocentrics. Um, and this has the exact same styling as the SMC, the Pentax SMC orthos. Like it has that little orange band. Um, and I know that's important to you. It is. Yes. I love that orange <laughs> band. <laughs> I just, like I'm just, I'm referring back to our, to our, one of our very early conversations where we were, we were trying to get tube rings and you didn't want to get a set of tube rings cause they were red. And that's I right. did buy, and I did buy those tube rings. Yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah. I coordinate my outfit with my observing gear. Oh, you should see Shane. And I just look like <laughs> you don't even, yeah. I, I present best in the dark. Oh, <laughs> uh, so anyway, Chris, that, that was my week. Like I say, I, you know, we chatted a little bit prior to kicking off the podcast. I was quite busy at work and yeah. there was a couple, well, there's two nights in particular I wanted to get out, but by yep. 8.30, I was, I was so bagged, so tired. I just did not want to, uh, like I wanted to take my gear out, 
but I've learned the hard way that when I'm that tired, I just, I, I got to stay on the couch because if I take my stuff out, you know, I drop eye pieces on the ground and, yeah. you know, you just make stupid mistakes and it's, yeah, yeah. it's just not worth it. Right. It's yeah. I've done it to you. Yeah. And so. it has to be enjoyable. Yeah. Is what it comes yeah. down to. You know, this isn't our profession. Um, you know, we really don't make any money at this. So it's just, nope. it really is just for fun. So uh, yeah, I, I hear you on that. I hear you on that for sure. Yeah. But you had a, a very busy week of observing. So I'd love to hear about it. Yeah, it was, uh, it was really busy observing. This is one of the weeks I was looking forward to for an awfully long time. I think I've had it on my radar since, since the spring um, because th- this was a somewhat rare opportunity and, and it was rare in, in the truest sense where you could actually see all of the, uh, all of the planets in, uh, in, in a night or, or in a very long, long day, I guess. Um, so I was really eager for that. Um, so I was able to get out and, uh, and see them all one night, but, uh, you know, as we were saying, uh, Mercury was going to be uh, visible, uh, this past week and, and this, this week now, um, but the weather really didn't start off so good. And so what I decided to do is, uh, I'd observed for a couple nights and then I thought, well, uh, the evenings weren't that good. Like you were saying, it, w- it wasn't even that good. And so, you know, uh, kind of once you've, you've, tried your best on, on Mars, uh, which is always important at this, at this opposition being so good. Um, you know, you, you may, maybe makes sense to pack it in and spend an evening on the sofa unless it's really looking good. Uh, but I decided to get up and, and observe, uh, Venus in the morning and, uh, just sort of going back to Mars for a second. I did get one decent view of the North polar cap, which I was surprised. And I noticed that the South polar cap as well, uh, at least to my eye appeared a little brighter recently. I'm not sure, sure what or why uh, that was. And I thought maybe it was just the particular filter I was using. I've been using the uh, contrast booster as well as the Celestron Mars filters quite a bit. Um, But then, you know, I, I, throughout the week, I made several comparisons with filters, without filters. And I did notice that uh, regardless of whether I had a filter or not, um, the polar caps do seem brighter, at least to my eye. And I don't know if it's a function of Mars simply just uh, getting a little bit further away from us and, and just the angle changing or, or what it was. But anyway, um, I get up in the morning, I think it was on the third, and uh, I knew Mercury would be uh, just getting visible um, sort of early last week. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to try to track it down uh, with binoculars. Maybe I'd even be able to see it naked eye. Um, but I get up and I, I don't know if I texted you this, but I did take a photo of it, like just cell phone. And we had these, uh, huge crepuscular rays. Remember we've seen these before. It's when there's a little bit of haze or something in the atmosphere. And then as the sun is, uh, setting in the cases where you and I've seen it together, you get these giant, uh, sort of rays that streak across the sky. And anyway, uh, we had that on the morning of, of the third, um, and, uh, you know, some of them were pretty thick. And of course the, the thickest, brightest ray uh, was right where um, Mercury should have been. But y- you remember seeing those, I, I think you'll recall. Yeah, yeah. And just for the listeners, the, crep- the crepuscular rays are, so like on a sunny day, you know, you might have some cloud and occasionally you'll see like sunbeams essentially coming through the cloud. Well, what Chris is referring to is we see these sometimes at sunset, but they're coming up from the horizon, like the setting sun. Yeah. Uh, casting these up and 
It doesn't happen very often, but when no. it does, it's it's really cool. It is cool. And and even my my wife noticed them just looking at them. She came out and said, Wow, those are really beautiful. And I'm like, Yeah, it's it's great, but I can't see Mercury. <laughs> so <laughs> Because one of them was right, right where it should have been. But I, I kind of used uh, Venus and I did an observation of Venus and I did a sketch and I could see some some of the cloud decks on, on Venus, which was super cool. Um, but what I did is I kind of um, sort of I did a bit of a dead reckoning uh, to see where I should place my telescope for um, for picking up Mercury. So then I eventually uh, put my put my tripod there uh, later. Sorry, one of my earphones just fell out. Um, anyway, and but I couldn't find it. I, I thought for sure I'll be able to see it with binoculars, and I, I spent probably about uh, fifteen or twenty minutes in between my uh, my Venus observations, uh, and I yeah, I, I just couldn't uh, couldn't pull it out of that really bright twilight. So that night, I decided that. Uh, I would hopefully be able to get some clear skies and it wasn't forecast to be clear. And uh, then around uh, just after, after dinner around sunset, I could see Jupiter and, and Saturn poking out naked eye between the clouds. And then the clouds kind of just cleared off, but it wasn't really, it wasn't really good. I think this is one of the nights you, you decided not to go out observing. Um, or maybe, maybe this was the night you just did the short session. I, I can't recall. I just have the dates. I didn't put whether it was Tuesday or Wednesday evening. But anyway, um, it wasn't that great uh, as far as the seeing went, but it was great that it had cleared off. And I kind of knew this storm was on the horizon and thought, well, I really got to take advantage of every opportunity I get here. And uh, so I decided that what I would do is hunt down uh, Neptune and Uranus because uh, I thought, well, uh, that will really refine my planet hunting skills. And like I said, I had had struggled and, and failed to find Mercury that morning. So um, I set up and I was able to hunt down Neptune with, with my 100 millimeter. Now, it was, it was funny because I have the, uh, the Skywatcher AZ GTI, which has go-to functionality. Mm-hmm. And my backyard is, is extremely light polluted. It's just horrible. I can see like maybe fourth magnitude stars now. I used to be able to see the Milky Way from my backyard when I moved here 10 years ago, but it's not the way it is now. Anyway, um, so, so I thought, well, I'll, I'll play around and get the uh, go-to working. And so I did all these alignments and blah, blah. And, and anyway, it wasn't working. It, it was not a fault of the telescope. What, what had happened was um, when I had moved the tripod, like I said, I moved it so that I'd be able to observe Mercury that following morning. Mm-hmm. And what happened was the pillar had become unthreaded just enough so that as the telescope slewed, it was just slowly rotating the pillar. <laughs> and so I, I couldn't figure what was going on. And then, uh, and then finally, you know, after, after 20 or 30 minutes of total frustration, I did like four or five alignments and the, and it was just getting worse. Right. I'm like, what is, it should be getting better. Not anyway. Anyway, that's when I realized this. So I was like, well, look, I'm just going to give up on that. I'm pretty good at finding stuff, even by dead reckoning. And I, I know all the stars. Like I can look up with my binoculars and I can see all the familiar star patterns and put a wide mm-hmm. field eyepiece in. And so I, I was able to nail it down in about four or five minutes. <laughs> I was able to get Neptune in the field of view. So kind of made me think, well, you know, how much, how much should I really be messing around with the go-to anyway? Um, because I think doing an alignment takes four or five minutes anyway. So, oh yeah. So there's, there's that. Um, so anyway, I was able to get Neptune 
took a look at it with 175 power. And I don't know how much Neptune observing you've done, but uh, not a lot <laughs> and not a lot recently. The last time I did it was, uh, or really like observed Neptune was with an eight inch uh, reflector a long time ago. Yeah. And in a telescope half that size, you know, it just kind of looks like a bluish gray star. And in fact, I, I only think it looked bluish. I can't say it mostly, it just looked like sort of a, a gray um, star that was, just a little bit rounder, kind of looks like a planetary nebula, really a yeah, super bright yeah. one that's about eighth magnitude. So yeah, I think I pulled it in too, but with the seventy six. But same thing, it was it was a, it looked like a star. What I yeah. really should have done was just quickly sketch the star field and then confirmed it inside, um, just to make sure I was looking at it. I was in the right realm, and I'm pretty sure I saw it. But again, it was not it was not planetary in any way in my seventy six. Yeah. You, you, I'm, I'm certain you got it because it's actually, there's the area in, uh, in any field that's about uh, 120 power or more that you would be in, in that general vicinity. Uh, it, it's about the brightest star and the other stars that are in there are like orange and super white. Right? So it, you know, the one, the one that is there that is in, in that magnitude range that looks sort of grayish or bluish. Um, you know, that's got to be it. And I went back and forth for a while with my uh, planetarium software and hundred uh, percent, uh, you know, I did, did have it there. So that was kind of neat. So mm -hmm. then I decided to track down, well, I looked up Mars for, for a short while. had uh, had some okay views 25 or maybe a little less and then uh yeah it, it just wasn't wasn't that great so you didn't miss a, a fantastic evening if, if that was one of the evenings you gave up mm -hmm. um so i decided well i'll track down uranus but where i had moved the telescope um uh like i had moved the tripod and and the telescope and everything uh, I now had a bunch of trees in between where, where the telescope was and where Uranus would be in the sky. So I thought, well, I'll just track Uranus down with the binoculars. Cause again, like just kind of, you know, refining my skills for, for getting Mercury in the morning. And, uh, that, that one was a little tougher. It took me about maybe 10 or 12 minutes to get it kind of back and forth quite a bit with, uh, with some star charts and that. And then I, I did get it, but Uranus definitely, you know, looked quite a bit better, even through my seven by 35s, uh, than Neptune had looked through the four inch. So oh, really, yeah. Cool. Cause you, you could get a better sense of it. It, it does kind of have some extension. It's magnitude 5.7 or 5.8. So that's reasonably bright in a pair of binoculars. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, yeah, that would really stand out in any binoculars really. Yeah. So, so that was kind of fun. Uh, I enjoyed that. And I know it's, it's up, uh, I think between set, well, it's between Cetus and I think the next constellation up is part of uh, Pisces or something, or, or Aries is up there somewhere anyway. So it's between Cetus and Aries, maybe into Pisces. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, not really that much to see. Uh, in the binoculars so but it was neat because I'd seen uh, Jupiter and Saturn just with the unaided eye then I'd hunted up Neptune and then I hunted up Mars and then I'd hunted up Uranus with the binoculars so then I packed up and uh, and went to bed mm -hmm. and then I happened to wake up I didn't set my alarm or anything because the weather was supposed to actually uh, move back in and it did I think there were some clouds 
kind of moving in some high clouds like the moon had come up at this point i could see like okay well it's clouding up so you know pack up and go to bed it was i was out for maybe two or three hours at that point anyway and then uh i get up i just happened to wake up about six or quarter after six and i looked at my watch and it said it was clear and i was like what the heck and wow. so i get up and rolled out and looked out the window and there's <laughs> there's venus shining bright and i'm like well let's try for let's try for mercury this morning and uh, yeah, put the binoculars on and right where it should have been, uh, it was. I found it in about like 30 seconds. And, uh, you know, it, it helped having gone out the day before. And then, of course, mm-hmm. my, my uh, you know, sort of dusting off my, my planet hunting, you know, sort of sky finding skill set uh, with the planet the night before definitely uh, put me in good, good position to find it. I got the 100 millimeter on it. But, you know, I had to focus on Venus first. Because uh, even when I sort of put Mercury in the field, often what I do with my finder eyepieces, I don't bother focusing it that well. I just kind of sort of roughly focus it. And mm-hmm. then because I'm going to put a higher power eyepiece in uh, and then I'll focus that one properly. But uh, what was happening is that Mercury uh, out of focus, just blend it right into the bright sky. So really? I had to kind of, yeah, wow. it's, yeah. Even though it was pretty bright in binoculars and it's pretty bright once you get it focused, um, it's still, the sky is, is that bright around it that, yeah, you'll, you'll lose it in, into the background sky for sure. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I was pretty far to focus, but, uh, but anyway, so, so I got it in the field and, uh, did a sketch. Yeah. I think I, I sent that sketch out to the Astro Sketcher. So I don't know if you saw that or not, but, uh, yeah, I did. That sketch was phenomenal. Like it's, uh, if you don't mind, I would love to tweet that out because oh, yeah, it's, sure, yeah. it's pretty darn cool. Like, um, you know, Mercury, I think I mentioned it maybe on the last podcast that Mercury just never really got my attention as an mm-hmm. observable object because I didn't think there was much to see on the surface or, you know, you, at yeah. best you would just sort of log it. Like you would almost like a Pluto observation to say, yep, saw it. <laughs> and that was it. But, yeah. uh, you know, your, your sketch is very intriguing. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I still feel, feel like that sketch is highly suspect. Uh, so I will say that. So basically with that sketch, and if people see it, if, if you please tweet it out, but what you're looking at there is, is I kind of observed uh, three or four things. So, well, I guess five things. So first of all, just finding Mercury can be a bit tough. Like even me as, as somebody who's found it many times before, I'm a pretty experienced amateur astronomer. I went out that first morning, which was forecast to be the best morning of the week, could not find it. Okay. Didn't find it with my eye, didn't find it with binoculars, couldn't find it with a telescope. And so uh, that's where I was starting from. Um, so just finding it is, you're, you're doing good just to find it, let me tell you. Uh, even though it only took me like less than a minute the next day, um, you know, that was my second kick at the can. Uh, and then the next thing you notice once you get the telescope on there is you'll notice that it's a crescent. Now, it's very, very low. You have to be careful observing Mercury because um, it can be close to the sun. Even, even at its furthest, it can be close to the sun. So you don't want to be observing it uh, once the, the sun is, is above the horizon. Um, sort of fortunately for me, I have a very large building um, between me and where the sun would come up. And so there's, there's no chance that I would ever get a piece of the sun. I could, I could probably observe it for half an hour after sunrise, just about and be, be totally fine. And it was just above that building. Now, because of that, and because it is very low, um, you'll see this crescent through the telescope. And mm-hmm. the crescent almost 
at the start while it is low and, and maybe while the telescope is still adjusting to the atmosphere, although I had pre-cooled it. And while the, the atmosphere is relatively stable in the morning, the sun is coming up and that can cause instability. Um, even, even at that, it looked like a seagull sort of flapping its wings. But <laughs> yeah, so I was kind of, I was disappointed at the beginning because I thought, well, you know, this, this was a fair bit of work. Um, mm -hmm. sort of the saga that I'm, that I'm telling kind of can, is sort of detailing out. So it, it was a fair bit of work just to get it and just to get it in the telescope. So I, I was happy at that. I was happy to be able to see the crescent. And I thought, well, shoot, you know, I've put in basically like a lot of time on this. I'm, you know, I'm tired. I'm still tired now from kind of going through this and said, so, well, shoot, I'm just going to, I'm just going to observe it. I'm just, you know, I spent all this time doing this. I'm going to just look at it for as long as I can. So mm -hmm. I kept observing it and really, I didn't notice much for a while, like maybe 10 or 15 minutes. So oftentimes I know like you track down something like mercury, you look at it, you notice the crescent, maybe you watch it for, for a few more minutes, maybe five or 10 minutes, and then you don't see anything, you pack it up. That's kind of been my experience before. So I watched it, watched it. I wasn't even planning to sketch it. And I was kind of going back and forth and, and looking at Venus and, and, you know, just kind of looking at the sky. It's kind of pretty. I like being up in the morning and observing, as you know. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. uh, and then I noticed that gradually I could kind of see like there was a bright spot. And I was like, that's kind of interesting. And it, then it started, the sky started to still up a little bit. And I could notice um, that the crescent was sort of darker um, in a few different spots. I could, I noticed like kind of on the, you know, sort of the limb areas and up on the sort of the parts where the, where the crescent, uh, you know, sort of peaks. Um, I noticed that those two areas in the South and the North were a little bit darker. And then I could notice that just below this sort of white uh, sort of blob on the planet uh, that there was a bit of a dark line. And I was like, well, that's kind of cool. So I thought, oh, I'm going to sketch this anyway. So then I got the sketch pad out and, <laughs> and made a sketch. Um, but, you know, who, who knows how much of that is the atmosphere and whatever I was using at first, I was using about 80 power or so just to uh, just to, you know, start the observation. And it was pretty unstable, but I was able to bring the power up to 105 power. So it's not really high power. Uh, and that's that's a nice power for for a 100 millimeter telescope. Anyway, I'm getting some pretty decent resolution at, at 105 power. So anyway, so so that was kind of my uh my experience with, with observing Mercury. And then, so this is kind of the funny thing, even though, even though in a way, and I think this is where planning comes in, I, I'd been looking forward to the week and looking forward to seeing Mercury and maybe seeing all the planets in one night. You know, in a way, I actually hadn't set out to do that. And sort of once I made the Mercury, I was like, hey, wait a second, I saw all the planets in the past, like, uh, evening, like since mm -hmm, mm -hmm. sunset, I'd seen uh, Jupiter and Saturn, then I hunted down Neptune, looked at Mars, looked at Uranus and then I uh, looked at Venus and focused it up and then put it on uh, Mercury. And then of course uh, we're here on earth. Um, and I was like, wow. And I observed them kind of in that order. Right. So I was like, that's awesome. That's yeah. That's kind of neat. I thought that was, uh, that was really neat. So that was my Mercury observation. So my next thing that I thought was, this was, you know, that was one of the things I'd really wanted to do for a long time this year and then I had something that I had wanted to do for a really long time for the past 15 years. But uh, Shane, what is the highest power 
that you've ever used uh, on a telescope. I know you've got those Vixen HRs, which give uh, some of the best high power planetary views, but uh, just wondering what your highest power has been that you've used effectively. Good question. Uh, so the HRs are new to my collection just over the last, I don't know, say four or five months. Uh, I collected those in anticipation of the Mars season here. Um, so, but to be honest, I really haven't used them that much. Uh, certainly not um, at real high powers. Like um, I've only been using my 76 millimeter and the only times I've used those Vixen HRs is when I've had the 76 in its native configuration with the 540 uh, millimeter focal length. Um, but anyway, with all of that aside, um, it would be, it would be about three, well, prop, where's my calculator here? Sorry. No, just wonder what, what power that would, uh, that would give you. What's, what size are the HRs? Uh, so they, there's a 1.6 millimeter, wow. a two, a two, a 2.4 and a 3.4. I just have the 3.4 and the 2.4. Okay. I, I think those other two are, are just, you know, that's pretty, you know, pretty special night to use a 1.6 millimeter. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just doing some math here. A few years ago, I had an outstanding view of Jupiter, uh, through my 120 millimeter uh, refractor. And that night I was pushing about 300 times. Wow. Um, and, and that's like, that was one of those nights, Chris, where I think you could have went 600 times Wow. and it would have been outstanding because there was zero degradation. Like it, yeah. it almost looked photographic. Yeah. Um, I would have gone further in my magnification had I the ability, but I, yeah. that night I was using a two and a half times teleview, uh, power mate, which is an, you know, a magnifier of sorts like a Barlow. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and my lowest power, I like my lowest focal length eyepiece. And, and I could only get it up to about 300 times. And you know what, that night, actually, like those nights are so fleeting, but I still regret not having the ability to add more power to the equation. Yeah. Um, so that's one of the reasons now too, why I have like a, a 2.4 millimeter eyepiece. Uh, I know I won't be able to use it very often, but if one of those nights comes back, I can put that in a 1.8 times Barlow and really get some high power if I need it. Yeah. Um, so anyway, 300 to answer your question is probably about my maximum of all time. Um, and maybe just an anecdotal story. Um, uh, one of the members in our local astronomy club has a 20 inch obsession reflector. And he told me about this one night where they were dovetail, like they were just stacking Barlow's on top of Barlow's and uh because the seeing was so good and i forget mm-hmm. what object they were looking at but they pushed it over a thousand times and he said that uh the seeing allowed that that night um mm. so kind of interesting um i don't know a thousand times seems awfully you know awfully intense but um you you had a really good night on wednesday i think which yeah I'd love to hear about too, because I wasn't able to get out. That was one of the nights where I was just, I had nothing left in the gas tank. Yeah. Yeah. So that night was, was set to be really good. Now, sort of to preface this, one of the reasons why I was really going out so much is that uh, my friend Bill, and he's got a 20 inch telescope over on Vancouver Island, um, which is, I don't know how far this is, maybe 2000 kilometers away, something like that give or take 
Yeah. Some, yep. Someone corrects my geography if I'm wrong there. I've, I've been there. I've just never, I've never driven it. I've, I've flown over there before. Um, and I don't know, he has, it's one of those super fast ones, like an F3 something. Hmm. And he was out observing and he was able to run, I think it was like 550, give or take power. And so wow. he, he wrote uh, onto our list and we were talking about this. And then um, because of, and it's a very, sh- it's a very small list of observers that I'm on um, uh, in Canada. It, it's, it's a, it's a, I guess it's a committee, but we don't really do any committee work. We just talk about observing once in a while. And the way that we use is, is if, if the sky, if we have a good piece of sky coming across, like I can actually, I can actually, you know, see it in a way through these other observers. And I can see that it's coming across the country and it's coming our way. And mm-hmm. I was thinking, I think it's going to be here sometime on Tuesday, or Tuesday or Wednesday. And, uh, and I think that's where I was able to do the good observation of Mercury is that I think that's when, when that bit of sky started coming over us. And because uh, as soon as sunset happened on, uh, on Wednesday, right away, I was able to run 175 power, 214 power, no problem. Usually you have to wait for the sky to kind of equalize a little bit. And usually there's like a bit of a difference with the telescope and there wasn't any, it was just, it would just take the power. And I thought, heck, I'm going to borrow my three and a half millimeter Pentax XW for a 350 power. Cause I was, I was messing around with, with a bunch of eyepieces out there and I had my five millimeter and I put that in the Barlow and that gives me about 240, which typically would be about the ceiling uh, for a four inch. And, uh, and I was just having trouble with it because it has a small field of view and just the way I was set up, it wasn't working well for my setup. So I thought, I'm just going to try the three and a half just as a joke almost, just to see what would mm-hmm. happen, prepared mm-hmm to try to fit and you know, while I tried to figure out how else I was going to do this and what other kind of eye pieces I had available to give me a, a power in the, in the 250 range. Cause I thought the sky would hold about 240 or 250. So I was really surprised that at 350 power um, with the three and a half millimeter in a Barlow, um, the planet Mars held completely steady and you could see all this fine detail around like Sinusabius and the desert region. I actually texted you and Mike a sketch that I did. I did a couple sketches of it. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw those or not. But, yeah, yeah, uh, they're really good. Yeah, it was, it was wild. Um, and so I, I texted you guys uh, and, and did these sketches after. And then uh, Mike was kind of like, I got to come see this. So he drove over, he showed up with like his mask and a pair of gloves on and stuff like that was great. I threw my mask on and we sort of did a a quick session in my backyard. But between the time when, when I had done my sketch or my, my sketches, I did two sketches. And when Mike arrived, um, just the way that that sky had set up, it was really strange. Like typically we don't have much do. In fact, I've kind of almost borderline bragging how how little do we get here and it's it's true we seldom get do um the eyepieces were just doing up like crazy um oh. so it was it was very unusual conditions um which led to that so so anyway um but yeah it was it was really amazing to get such sharp uh and detailed views uh at 350 power uh in a four inch telescope it seems like something wow. you'd write on the the side of a, of a box, uh, of an inexpensive telescope to try to, <laughs> you know, get, get people yeah. maybe to purchase it. But yeah, it was wild, you know, just, just wow, to see that incredible. detail. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. Great, great observation. Like those, those nights are so rare. Um, yeah. and I, you know, man, I should have, I should have just, you know, drank a cup of coffee or something and gone out that night. Yeah. I'll tell you though, like running that kind of power is like a job in itself though. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you, you know, you forget like just the way that I've been observing and, and, you know, 99% of the time I'm observing by myself, my wife come, might come out and join me. Uh, you know, we've gone out for a few sessions over the past, uh, eight or nine months, but, um, you know, you, you kind of just get into this, this sort of rhythm with how you're doing it and observing alone is a little bit different than observing with other people. Like when Mike showed up, I'm like, yeah, I'll do this. And it really, I was really like kind of clumsy because he's talking to me, which is great. You know, it's nice to actually talk to somebody face to face for a change. And then, uh, you know, uh, just the business of trying to, you know, get it back to that power and get it. Uh, tracking on it properly um, and carry on like a, like a reasonable, um, pleasant conversation um, is, uh, you know, it's kind of like a, a bit more juggling than, than you're used to. Cause you used to, you know, I'm getting used to just being so focused on, on finding the stuff and, and observing and uh, kind of going back and forth with a bunch of different eyepieces uh, has sort of become my, my, uh, I guess, uh, program that I'm employing every, every time I go out now. So so anyway, and uh, yeah, my wife, she had come out uh, sort of in between and, and taken a look and she couldn't get over how huge it was in the eyepiece. So mm-hmm. 350 power, it's so much power. And I've, I've used some pretty high powers before. So I knew somebody with a five inch astrophysics refractor and uh, we would often run around, I forget what it was, but it was around like 300 to maybe 350. And, uh, and then I have a friend in Ontario, Peter, um, who's a, who's a pretty well-known telescope maker. He makes these beautiful 10 inch telescopes, um, with his friends. Um, and, and those can run easily up to 500 power. And, uh, and he was, he calls them a perfect 10 and, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, like he'll talk about a telescope and you're like, yeah, right. Like, is it that good? And then, um, he had this perfect 10 out. It was just after he built it. And I had that 3.5 inch Pentax or 3.5 uh, millimeter Pentax. And I, I kind of said, look, if it's, if it's that good, this is a good night. And uh, we were out in this parking lot at, at his, at his work doing like a little star party. I said, uh, you know, it should easily do, you know, 400 power or whatever it was. And, uh, and he said, yeah, maybe. And so he kind of walked away and I don't know what he was doing, but I threw the 3.5 millimeter in. I was looking at Saturn and like, you could just see like the rings, like a, like a record, right? all these little grooves. Oh, the, I've never, never seen anything like that since that was 430 power. Um, and yeah, I think, I think that the quality of the instrument has, has a lot, lot to do with it. And uh, it's pretty surprising. I think, I think what it comes down to is I think there's some people that just have the knack to build them. And I think that whoever Takahashi is, is getting to make their lenses has that knack. And, uh, and, you know, like I said, I think my friend Peter definitely has that knack too. Like it's pretty ridiculous how, how good, uh, his, his telescopes that I've been lucky enough to look through uh, have been, he also owns a, a 25 inch reflector that, uh, that I've been able to spend uh, considerable time at, uh, while I was living on Ontario, of course, but, uh, but yeah, the next night, we also had uh, clear skies, which again, it was supposed to be completely cloudy. I was teaching my class and I virtually never observe after my class because I'm just bagged, even mm-hmm. even on Zoom and uh, finished the class. 
we went out for a walk and it was there were still a few clouds kicking around but by the end of our walk at uh you know whatever it was getting around 10 o'clock there and it cleared off and i said to my wife you know what it's clear this is pro this is not probably this is almost certainly the last night that i'm going to get in without snow or sub-zero weather and so uh set up and i did like about like an hour and a half or, or almost two hours and observed till just about midnight and did another i didn't do any sketching that night but i was able to get you know, sort of one last really nice view of Mars and uh, able to run 214 power, uh, no problem. Yeah. It was wow. Good yeah. Yeah. So, well, the next thing. We... Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't know if you saw on the bottom of this, but I was chatting with, uh, with my friend Clark uh, and my other friend Randall over in, over in Ontario, We're working on some projects together. And, um, Looking at uh, Odwin Dolphus's sketches uh, from the from the '60s uh, of uh, of the satellites of Jupiter, and so in, in the Atlas of the Planets, he put in these sketches of Io Europa Ganymede and Callisto that he made at 1,000 mm -hmm. power uh, through a 42-inch reflector at the Pictomedi, um, and I was like, oh. That's that's what I want to try for next. <laughs> well, you know, I've always been curious of, of even just being able to resolve any of the Galilean moons around Jupiter yeah. uh, as a disk rather than just a star um, would would fascinate me. Never mind seeing surface detail on them; that would be incredible. Yeah, so I don't know. Um, that'll sort of be the next thing. I, I really think like Peter's scopes um, should be able to do it. Hmm. You know. I, I would I would love to be able to convince him to uh, to build to build one for me, um, but uh, but I, I don't know he he kind of likes to do it in conjunction with people building I'm I'm not that good at building stuff, so mm -hmm. he, he kind of likes he what he enjoys doing which is amazing he's an amazing guy um, he'll kind of like walk people through the process of building the telescope he has plans in that and he'll he'll do everything to kind of help you but you have to be handy but first of all I don't even live anywhere near him anymore I live like thousands of kilometers away. And so uh, I think that any kind of instruction would, would, would be lost in translation. And I'm not that handy a person. So, mm -hmm. so anyway, Shane, I guess uh, people have probably had their fill of hearing about Mars for a while. And uh, we may not get out observing for a little while anyway, it seems. Yeah. Um, hopefully we, we can get, you know, one or two more sessions in before Mars is gone for a couple of years, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, when this, when this type of weather comes in here, you just never know. It can be here for a long time and it can also disappear quickly. And all of a sudden you have crisp, clear skies. So we'll see. Yeah. Well, good chatting with you, Shane. It's been a lot of fun today and, uh, how can people stay in touch with us? Uh, they can find us on Twitter. We are at Actual Astronomy. Uh, you can email us. We are actualastronomy at gmail.com. And you can also leave feedback on any of the podcasting apps or services out there. Okay. Well, thanks so much. Thank you, Chris. And thank you to everybody for listening. <laughs>